This is the Photography Experiment Podcast, episode number 19, and today's special guest is pro cycling photographer Christophe Ramon. He's one of the world's best photographers of the genre, covering the biggest races in the world, including the Tour de France, the Giro d'Italia, the Tour of Flanders, and Paris-Roubaix. And his work is so much more than just sports. He captures the essence of the riders and what's happening in more than just the race. I've got links to the show notes where you'll find examples of his work at photobizx.com forward slash tpx19. And this episode of the podcast is sponsored by the Snap Photography Festival. It's happening in April 2017 and there's less than 20 tickets left. I'll tell you more about Snap later in the show. This is the Photo Experiment Podcast, brought to you by PhotoBizX. Today's guest is pro cycling photographer Christophe Ramon. Christophe was born and raised in Belgium and attended film school at the age of 19. It was here that he discovered photography. He eventually followed his passion for cycling and photography and started photographing the sport. It's difficult to define Christophe as a sports photographer because his photography captures so much more than just the action. He says the riders are always his main focus and that comes through immediately when you see his portfolio, which features close-up portraits of races caked in sweat, mud, dust, snow and grime. I'm looking forward to hearing more of his story. Christophe, welcome. Hi. Hi, Andrew. How do you define yourself as a photographer? Well, like your introduction, I think I'm a sports photographer in that I focus on one sport and it's simply the one sport I really like and the one sport I'm passionate about, which is cycling. But I see like so a heavy portrait influence. So you never would consider yourself a portrait photographer. You still call yourself a sports photographer. Well, you got a point there in that I've never, obviously, I never think about what kind of specific photographer I am. I cover the sport of cycling. That is the main focus. But definitely when I started out, it was only portraits I did because when I started out, I was no professional photographer at all or none of that. Uh, nobody with that capability. But what I did is I went to the start of races and I made portraits of riders and I put them online. And that's how my career as a cycling photographer started, actually. So, yeah, portraits was the first thing I did. And then I learned to catch the action as well. Let's look back at you, you know, how you got started and the progress that you made to get to where you are today in just a minute. Can you give us an idea of you know, what a normal event is like for you now? Or when you look back at what you've done already, even this year, what's one of the big races that you've covered? Definitely. I go all to, to all the big cycling races in the world, which means that there are two categories. There are the one-day races and there are the stage races. The one-day races are called the classics and they're really huge events one day events you usually get there the day before you prepare yourself for the race you get up early on the race day you go to the event to the start you do the race you go to the finish which is 200 kilometers or 300 kilometers further down and then you go to the hotel and start editing for the rest of the night that's a bit how a classic race looks like and the other type of racing is the stage races and most known obviously is the tour de france but you've got another few uh, like the giro d'italia and the vuelta d'espana and the worlds and stuff which is another thing but on those stage races actually it's like 20 classic races stitched together as size and impact goes so those are mainly the events i cover Let's take a one-day race, a classic, for an example. When you go to a classic race, are you commissioned to go there? Do you know you're going to get paid for that day's work? Yes and no. I work independently. So, yeah, I know this is a strange answer, but it varies because 
there's several ways I get money. <laughs> Mainly, I've got my own agency. So it's the Cramon Cyclophoto Agency, and it's simply a lot of magazines I have uh, a subscription to that. So that means that I cover races. I put images in there in the image bank and my clients uh, go and pick them up there. They can choose whatever image they like and which they want to present in their magazines or their websites. That is one aspect of what I do. But I also look, work very closely with some of the teams. Like the, the past two years, I worked very closely with the Australian team, uh, Orica. Green Edge, uh, Bike Exchange, and now Scott, but Orica, Team Orica, anyway. And this season, I will be working very, very closely with Trek Segafredo team. When you're working, let's say you this year, so you're working for or with Trek Segafredo, and you're at a classic event, are they paying you to be there, or do you have to spend more time concentrating on their team and their riders, or do you just capture the day as you normally would? Like, I'm just curious about you know where your focus has to be on a day when you've got these different commitments. You've got magazines, you've got teams, you've got your agency. Who are you concentrating on? The good thing is once the race is, has started, it's just covering the race. And obviously when you have a, a race usually and a classic race usually is somewhere between five or sometimes even six hours of racing and you're on the back of a motorbike. So you pass it several times a day, an hour actually. So you have lots of opportunities to catch whoever rider you think you need. Like with some teams I know I have to have some pictures of, some riders I know I have to have some pictures of. So you, you sort of ride alongside of them, take that picture or wait for a moment that's good to take that picture. And once you get to the finale, which is usually one or two hours before the finish, then you really just concentrate on the race. Whoever's in front, you try to capture what's happening, who's in the brakes and try to go with that. So it's, it's that is your pure race coverage. But once before the race starts and after the race, I'm usually in the team, um, actually at the team hotel, in the rooms, in the team bus, wherever it is I need to be or think I need to be. But that's what I decide myself for. And I ask the team if it's okay to get onto the bus and have some pictures of riders preparing for the race and stuff. So it all differs up a bit. But even working for a team, usually those images are made available for press as well, because a team is always happy that its pictures appear in magazines worldwide. So they often allow me to actually use those pictures for my agency as well. So it's a bit, it's very double. Well, that's great for you. Fantastic for you, income-wise. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's be honest here. I'm very, very fortunate to work this way. And then, and in the past few years, I've got to know a lot of people and a lot of people in the cycling industry got to know me. And that's the way business works sometimes. Yeah. Nice. That's fantastic. From the outside looking in, you're living the dream. I mean, you know, you're there chasing these cyclists all over the world and doing what you love to do. Is that how it is? Yes. <laughs> it's as good as what it looks. Yes. I mean, yes and no. The one thing that people keep forgetting, obviously, but I don't, I mean, I don't blame them, is the huge amount of work that goes into it. I have sleep deprivation or how they call it in English. It's like I sleep not enough. I work hard. But there's always those instances. I have friends working in banks and I always keep reminding me of that. Like I'm here on some island chasing cyclists training and my friends are in their cubicle. And I think I have the best deal out of those for me. So I'm happy where I am. I'm not complaining at all. It is it is hard, hard work, and there's no denying that. And it's free for everybody to try. So welcome. <laughs> well, 
like I said, I'm going to go back and look at how you got to where you are today. But just quickly with the income side of things and the agency, when you have a team uh, that you're working for like Trek, is that something that you negotiate with them or do you have an agent or a manager that sort of negotiates with them how much they're going to pay you or what you have to supply? Is there a contractual agreement? How does that work? The thing is, cycling is a very niche sport, even worldwide. It is huge in Flanders, where I live in Belgium. It's huge. It's in the few countries around us. It's pretty big. But on a global scale, it's a niche sport still. That means I negotiate all contracts myself. I get contacted or people get to know me or, or it is sometimes they contact me because I have a certain picture they would like. But in general, I negotiate contracts and stuff directly myself. I have no agent. Right, okay. So, again, you tell me what you're happy to tell me and the listener, but when you're working for a team, do you have an obligation in that contract then to deliver like so many images per week or per month? Like, you know, How does it work as a photographer? What are you getting paid for? What do you have to deliver? The thing is, I've been extremely fortunate in and I haven't had any team or brand or whatever magazine that called me up and said like, we have to have 10 pictures or we have to have 20 pictures and um the thing is, thanks to my portfolio, I guess, they know already what I will shoot. And they did just let me. I mean, I know that I will be working close to 50 days with the team Trek. And it's sometimes on training camps. It's on races. It's on grand tours. So, yeah, the thing is, they expect at the end of the contract to have the choice between, let's just say, and this is purely a hypothetical, a choice somewhere between a few hundred and, let's say, a thousand usable pictures for them that they can choose from and that are purely, purely their story. So that is what they're looking for. And with the uprise of the importance of social media, they want that unique viewpoint covered. And that is what I do. So that's why I go into teams is to catch that unique viewpoint because I have a lot of colleagues who just are next to me on the motorbike or next to me on the finish line. So they shoot very similar pictures. They do it their way. I do it my way, but they are similar. But it's the uniqueness comes from working closely together with either a few riders or with a team and you get insight and you're the only one because they're not going to allow like five photographers to follow them constantly into hotel rooms and stuff because that's just annoying. But if you become one of the team, you come up. I've just came back a few weeks ago from a training camp and it was a shitty day. I mean, it rained constantly and the riders couldn't get the block of training done. So what they did, a few of them and a few big champions there, they just went into the um, hotel garage and started working on their trainers there. And those pictures are really, really, for me, are the bonus. Those are the ones I'm really looking for. I know those are unique because you catch them at a moment, like it's nothing glamorous there. They're working really, really hard. So if they win a race later on in the season, you know that it's exactly there where it's earned. So those are the opportunities I'm, I'm actually looking for. So that's where you really need to be part of, you need to be accepted and contracted to the team and have that access to get those shots that make you stand out. Exactly, because that's the only way they're going to accept that. If you just fly in from another agency, you're not connected to the team or you're connected to one magazine that comes in on the media day, you're not going to catch all those little moments. And it's exactly those little moments that set you apart or that makes it unique and what makes it absolutely worth for me are those little moments. 
sure. Let's talk about those photos of the guys on the trainer, you know, in the garage, you know, they're gritty sort of images. They're not glamorous, like you said. So when you've got those, you know, you get home, you process them or back to the hotel, you know, you've got something special. Do you upload them and make them available straight away? Or do you save them until that racer wins a race? No, those images are usually available pretty straight away. Because magazines just want to cover also the cycling magazines. During the winter months, they don't have much race footage to show. So this is the kind of footage that they can show. And if they're doing a reportage for the next season on one of the big name riders like John Dagenkolb for Team Trek, then those are the unique pictures they can already show. So most of them, and I mean, I've shot now a few pictures as well. I've shot a few with one of the big names in cycling, which is Alberto Contador. And he was on a specific bike and that bike was under embargo because it needs to be released. So those pictures are fantastic and I'd love to release them. But I cannot simply because of the embargo that like in two weeks time I can release them and I will happily release them. But up until then, obviously, I need to restrict those pictures from circulating. But that is an agreement you make with your client, obviously. So he's on a Trek bicycle, is he? And then they've asked you not to release that yet. Exactly, yeah. Right, okay, okay. But obviously you're going to be the photographer, the only photographer with those images, so you're sitting pretty waiting to release these because you know that other magazines and online publications are going to want those photos. Yes, yeah, yeah, exactly. And those might be the ones released. It's a bit like last year before the Tour de France, the Australian team that was um, Orica Green Edge, just before the Tour de France became Orica Bike Exchange. And they asked me to shoot ahead of the Tour de France, the new cycling kit. So like a few days in advance, I was shooting with the guys in their new cycling kit. And I had great pictures and I had to wait just a few days. But those were actually the pictures that were released by the team and by the sponsors just to announce the message, actually. And that's when you see your pictures going worldwide in all the magazines, because that's the ones that come with the press release. So that is a situation you get in as well. So you shoot those shoots as well. And obviously you need the professionalism to keep those pictures for your clients and not for yourself, not to release them for yourself. Until the client says it's okay to release them. Until the client releases first, which means literally means like if you're online at that moment and they release that, then like five minutes later you go like, yep, here's some more. (laughs) Let's say you see Orica release the photos of the new team kit and you're sitting online, you go, okay, I can let mine go now. Do you send out an email to all the publications that you deal with and say, hey, guys, I've just uploaded some new photos of the Orica team kit? Do you let them know? No. The thing is, I think I've been published. I've worked closely with like somewhere around 10 cycling magazines worldwide. There's like potential clients and occasional clients. You can easily put in 10 to 20 more and they all follow me on the social media. So the only thing I really need to do is just put one on social media or let's say Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. That's the ones you do it there. And then the thing I see is actually... If I release a picture on Instagram, I see that specific picture. I've taken hundreds at that occasion, and they're like, let's say, 50 of those images, similar pictures are available in my archive. But what happens is the one I post on Instagram is usually the one picked by editors to feature in a magazine as well. Do you think they do that because your followers have already seen that? They know that photo? That might be the case. On the other hand, I'm pretty sure, like, I'm sort of an editor myself at that point. So if I release a picture that tells most of the story or that's just what I might consider the best picture. And a lot of editors might agree on that and they check 
the images and say like, well, this image is probably the most representative or the most spectacular one or whatever reason. So it's a bit double there. So they get a suggestion from me because I posted it. That's when they know like, ah, Christoph got pictures of this. They check it and then they either choose another one or they choose the one that are released on social media. So I don't have an email listing because to be honest, I hate getting those myself. So I don't I personally hate myself getting into my mailbox. Sure. You're a fantastic photographer, you know, and you're living the dream. You've been published a lot. What excites you more, getting published or getting paid for your work? (laughs) No, I think let's let's step back a little bit. I was, as you introduced me, and that is true, I went to film school. So my big dream when I was like 20 was – to make a film. I thought like if I ever in life would have a feature film, make a feature film, direct one, that would make my life complete. I never succeeded in that. The only thing I did was uh, make a short film, but I started working in television after that, which isn't that glamorous as cinema. But when I became a photographer, actually getting published is a bit similar to maybe making a movie or something. Or So I think I love the fact that I see my work printed and distributed i love that i'm always happy when i have a cover of a magazine or yeah it makes me proud sure nice what do you do when you make a cover of a magazine do you buy a copy of that magazine do you frame it do you put it aside for your kids what do you do well (laughs) the other thing is and this might sound blasé but if you have had a lot of covers (laughs) while it's like well there's no need to put that one up or (laughs) <laughs> so you have had a lot published. And usually the magazines send me a copy or I have even a subscription to a few of them. But usually I get one send it over. So I just stock them. <laughs> That's what I do. <laughs> There's a pile of magazines that have either my images or my covers. And you can ask my wife. She's so tired of that heap of magazines just lying around there. And I need something with them and I don't know what. Oh, they'll be worth something one day. And I know your kids will appreciate them, that's for sure. The one thing, and there's, there's several kinds of magazines, and you have to be honest about that as well. It's like there's simply the magazines which are more graphical, which are more – there are simply magazines that are more mainstream and that there are others that are more coffee table books almost. And obviously those are the magazines I would buy by myself anyway. And the quality of print, the quality of paper, the quality of writing also, and what they write about is very important. And those, for me, are my guidelines because I'm most proud of all when I get published in these magazines because I simply love them myself. Can you give me an example of one or two of those so the listener can go and maybe check them out in a newsagent? Internationally, I mean, well, let's call it, Rouleur started a movement more than 10 years ago with having this off beat photography and reportage style uh, introduced into cycling. And then there's a lot of magazines that must admit that they they not copied a lot, but they sort of drew inspiration of that. And in Belgium, that would be Bahamontes magazine. In Holland, that would be Swanjur magazine. They are now an international magazine, so in English. And there's also magazines called Wired, which are cycling culture. And oh, there's so many of them. That's cool. I totally get it now because I have actually purchased and yet had uh, delivered a copy of Rouleur and it's almost, like you said, a coffee table book or a photo book. It's something special, isn't it? I mean, that's a beautiful publication. Yes. And I've been extremely fortunate to work with a lot of these magazines, actually most of them I regularly work for. 
And those are the ones that they are not the highest paying jobs, not at all. But I must admit that it's the ones I love working for because the way they present the work is simply gorgeous. And that's the way I love my work to be presented. But I also understand that not every magazine can do that. They have different audiences and they have different commercial plans or whatever, the different kind of magazines. So they have to be there as well. And I have to survive from this. This is my full time job. So I provide most magazines. Right. I've got so many questions for you because this is so interesting. But if you were given the choice to have your photos shown anywhere you can choose, you know, where would you most like to see your photos displayed? Obviously, there's one or very obvious choice maybe for this is to have a coffee table book by myself. Okay, so that to you would be more prestigious than, say, having an exhibition? It's similar. It can go together, right? Yeah, that's true. I've had an exhibition before, which previous work. Before I was a cycling photographer, I was something of a music photographer, or I mean, I was a bit into music and stuff, and I had a real exhibition, uh, that as well, so that was cool. I never had once, I had a few photos exhibited in small occasions, but the real proper thing, a real big exhibition is... I think the sport might be too niche for that or there needs to be an occasion that makes it bigger because it's an expensive thing to do and I must admit if I would do it exactly the way I want it to be done, it would be a very expensive thing. Just the, the quality of prints, the size of prints, the space you need, the lighting that needs to be on it and stuff like that. If all needs to be perfect, that would be expensive. That means you have to reach more people than just a little exhibition. So it would have to coincide with, say, the classic season or the Tour de France or Giro d'Italia, something like that. I don't know. The thing is, that's not a thing I work on. I mean, if it ever happens in the future, I would be very happy that it would. But I'm not working on it now. The coffee table book or the book is something that I'm more and more confident about that it will, at some point, surface. Are you earmarking images now as you go? Like as you're shooting each year, do you think, oh, this might be something for the book? And do you mark that? No. Not yet. The thing is, it's now in the back of my mind. It needs to come more to the front, which means like it needs to become a project before I actually do that. Okay. You mentioned earlier that you are your own agency, and I imagine you're working with a lot of other photographers in the sport, your colleagues. I imagine some of those are shooting for different agencies like Getty's. Why have your own agency? Why not shoot for someone like Getty's? Because they haven't asked me. (laughs) Fair enough. Getty didn't, but a few others have. I cherish my independency above everything almost. So I'm not comfortable at all to just give my pictures away or the control of them away. So, yeah, that's just it. And up until now, I didn't have to. I'm earning enough money to do this on my own. It might not be a wise choice for the future, but we'll see when that happens, when another opportunity arises or somebody really gives me a lot of money. I don't know if I would succumb to that. But I think... For now, no, it's not even open for discussion, I would say, because it doesn't need to be. For me, it's successful enough already. Um, It doesn't need to become much bigger because I'm already almost losing my head on what I need to do. So is it at a point where you might take on another photographer, you know, to cover races that you can't be at? Exactly at this moment, I'm actually looking for sort of an assistant, yes. Oh, wow. Once this gets out now, (laughs) you have people knocking on your door. Trouble is, and I must, I mean, I'm already pretty far in the selection process because just for practical reasons, I've decided that it needs to be someone 
that lives not too far away from where I live. For sure. Uh, which makes it small. I mean, I live in Belgium, and most of the people I know in cycling and, and do, do not, uh, or photography. And there might be interest internationally to be an assistant, I don't know. But to be honest, I'm not going to fly over assistance for jobs and stuff i mean it needs to be somebody living close by who just drives by and you go to a job together and simply because i have a few clients and have too much clients maybe that needs pictures for their facebook and stuff of a team of riders and stuff and i have a big team to follow so and i need to focus on that and the difficulty is that i don't want to put a style on anybody and i think i have a style or a specific point of view and an experience and i can only bring that experience to that person and hope that he develops a style all by him or herself and so yeah something needs to happen i need extra hands to help me <laughs> fair enough how did you go from music to cycling let's cover that well I was developing myself as a photographer. When I covered music, I only used available light at concerts. I used to work for television. I interviewed a lot of bands and that came to Belgium and stuff. I sometimes had my camera and I snapped some portraits, always with available light. And I also had a friend who had a publicity agency and who needed some portraits done. And he loved my concert work. And he thought, well, if you can shoot that, you probably can shoot that guy here behind the desk and make something out of that. And I said, okay, I will try it. But the thing I stumbled upon was that the circumstances in which I needed to take pictures didn't allow me to simply use available light to make it interesting. And I realized that, but I was so already into photography at that point that I gave myself a crash course into flash photography and learned, learned, learned. Like I dreamt light plans for a year. <laughs> This is not even exaggeration. I went to sleep and from morning till evening and at night during my sleep, I saw light. I saw composition. I saw and, and I followed online tutorials on Photoshop and stuff like that. And slowly but solidly, the experience came. And at some point I thought, like, I know all these techniques now and I cannot show them. So I need a subject to try it out. And that's when uh, I looked like, hey, there's this race coming near my house, like 20 kilometers from where I live. And I love cycling. So let's try and make portraits of those guys. I did that with my own flash techniques. I had an assistant with me, a friend, which is, I call him assistant, but he's just a friend. <laughs> was that a pro cycling race that you went to? Was it amateurs? That was a pro cycling that's the thing when you live in Belgium, and that is my privilege living here. It's like the biggest names in the peloton, they just drive by my door. Not literally, but like a few kilometers out of here. I can go to a start of a big race and see the biggest riders on the planet. Yeah, but hang on. So you can go in there with your friend who's holding an off-camera flash and, say, photograph Tom Boonen. Of course, yeah. <laughs> he doesn't care. Well, the thing is, you need to be smart. Now you're calling one of the biggest names, which means like, I was smart at that when I live in Belgium and you go to a team bus at the start of a race and you want to make a portrait with flash of Tom Bonin, you need to be either very, very persistent or like patient or need a way in. But because all the people around, there's like hundreds of people around that bus that all want to have a selfie with Tom Bonin. But the thing I did was like go to the other riders that just came out of the bus, took their bike, went to the start and just in between them taking their bike and going to the start, I simply asked them, hey, would you be okay if I took a, a quick picture? And I had a setup that 
took them like literally if, as soon as they said yes within five seconds that picture was taken so that's what i did and when i came home and i processed the pictures with all the new techniques i learned which was over sharpened and stuff like that but i posted them online and pretty soon i mean within 24 hours i had so many international reactions on them i just put them on Flickr, and there was so many reactions on them like hey this is weird <laughs> let's do it again and that's what I did. And within a year from posting that, those pictures, like within a year, a year and a half, I was a full-time cycling photographer. Wow. Okay, then. So something happened there. Yeah. Taking those first pictures and the first international job I did for Shimano was like a year, a year and a half. That's it. And then I was a sort of an official photographer shooting cyclists and getting paid for it. So I know the listeners dying to know what were those first portraits like what made them stand out so much that you got all this international interest it's easy it's easy go and look them up they're still online so you're talking about the ones shot with 50 the 50 mil 1.8 in close in tight straight out these were before the race and after the race no that was a bit later but the very first ones are actually more flash and very blue and sharpened and i i hate those pictures now but i think the thing is, you evolve. When you begin something and you learn a trick or a technique and you try it out, you always tend to overdo it. But in later photography, it's like those little tricks, you try to implement them more subtly. And that's when it becomes interesting because I needed those to go really overboard to be able later on to make that trick more subtle and maybe not noticeable or not as noticeable as the trickery it is. And that's, that's technique, I mean. Yeah, but you know what's so interesting about this to me is you're the photographer and you're saying it was over-sharpened, it was too blue, it was overdone, and now I have to be more subtle. But it was because it was over-sharpened or they were over-sharpened and maybe too blue that got you the attention that gave you the launch pad to be where you are now. Exactly. Exactly. Here's the thing. Who discovers you first? In my case, it was cycling enthusiasts. It was not photographers. It was not agencies and stuff. I sort of got a little following going that were just cycling enthusiasts that said, this is totally different. Seeing this big rider in such a fashion is, fashion is so different. And it was. But then as soon as you get more and more and more followers, all of a sudden somebody pops up that's from a magazine. He notices the work and he goes like, hey, would you be okay? And you have some more work to show and stuff. But that's when it happens, and yeah. But even what's curious is, you know, you say you really don't like the photos that you originally took, but they're the ones that the people loved. Yeah. To me, that's amazing because you're the photographer, you don't like it, but they're the ones that got you noticed, so why not keep doing that? The thing is, and this is one of the key points, I think, when I see a lot of amateur photographers, the big difference there is that they're not too critical. They're not critical enough of their own work. I have to differentiate who the praise comes from in that is it somebody that is really into who knows a lot about photography, who has a style, who has um, I mean, it's only natural that if you're not into that cultural bubble and you just see a picture and it goes like, yeah, this is spectacular. But as a professional looking at those images in retrospect, because I liked them at the time because I was trying stuff out. It's only later that you have enough body to say like, okay, this is what I did. That was trickery. But you have to 
as a photographer looking at it, you, you know that this is this kind of effect and it's like going overboard on an effect. Remember the HDR effect? Yeah. It was horrible. Yeah, over the top. It, it's, it's horrible. But a lot of people liked it. It's not because a lot of people like it that it is the right thing to do. Because my aim, if I have one, is to make pictures that are have a more like, I don't know, that you can look back on in history, that are more classic, that could pop up 30 years from now and still simply be a good picture instead of, I mean, all those HDR pictures taken couple of years ago and if people seeing them in 20 30 years time they're going to dismiss of them immediately and they should because it's horrible but the thing is i want in the future to have a more classical look that can hold the test of time so that's when you get away from effects or heavy effects and be very much more interested and that's where i am now is storytelling what makes a picture you talk about you know shooting now to have images that you can look back on in 20 or 30 years' time and see them as classic. When I look through your portfolio, I see that you used to shoot a lot more black and white, which I would consider classic, than what you're shooting now. Is that because you're restricted because of you having to provide colour images for your publications and the agency, or you just, you've gone off black and white? No, I haven't gone off of black and white. It's more a period thing for me. Sometimes I'm into black and white and I just process them black and white. And the truth be told, I've got more and more clients. Uh, if I have a good black and white, I said, could we have, please have the color version of this? <laughs> and, uh, then I have to go back into the archive. I mean, it's sometimes two years back or something and find that picture and reprocess it in color. And sometimes you process it in black and white because of the colors that are in there. The thing is, I love old cycling pictures. From anywhere between, like, yeah, the very old ones, obviously, but especially the ones in the 50s and 60s, 40s, 50s and 60s, all black and white, obviously. I simply loved them. And also because of the styling of the jerseys and the people around them and the story they tell. The nice thing is, like, if you go to a cycling race now, it's too colorful. It's a bash of fluo with red and green and Sometimes it's simply too much, and I sometimes love to tone that down, either by desaturating or just going black and white. So it's more got to do like, what do I feel? Do I see the picture in black and white, or do I feel that it needs color? And then if I think it's a good picture that some clients might be interested in, I just do a double process, and you can find a black and white version and a color version in the archive. That doesn't happen too often, but it happens. Okay. Don't you think that in... 40 or 50 years from now, when people look back at, say, your photography and they see this, these bright colours, the fluoros, the reds that you talked about, don't you think they'll look at those the same way that you're looking at photos from the 40s or 50s now and think, wow, look at that, look at those colours? Yeah, that's a good point, yeah. Yeah? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, absolutely. You're right. I mean, I shouldn't be too nostalgic about those pictures and trying to reproduce them, but it all got to do... As a photographer, you develop a style simply by your cultural reference. I grew up, I mean, with punk music and then became uh, into another style of music. And I mean, offbeat culture was something that interested me in several ways. So those cultural influences determine your style, what you like, what you visualize, how you see things. And that's what you try to reproduce. The thing I try to stay away of is the trick stuff, the filters, the ready-made filters. I try to keep away from them. 
and I try to find my own thing in there, which is still, and that is why I try to make them more time resistant, is like I want to find a way that the image is clear and not overtaken by an effect. So it's a subtle line you need to find, and each one has to find his own way to do this, but you need, I mean, I have a strong urge to do it my way, and uh, that's the thing, how I see things. So your remark on, well, shouldn't you just photograph what you see, all the colors and stuff? You might be right, because in 20 to 30 years' time, that might be the thing they look back to and say, like, look how crazy these colors were. And I didn't grab it. That's true. Well, or I did because I have enough color as well. But <laughs> Do you have the freedom as a photographer to shoot what and how you want? Or are you dictated to by who buys your photos? No. I think the biggest, absolute biggest mistake you can make is to let yourself be told how to shoot. If you have an ambition and it doesn't matter if you want to be a cycling photographer or any specific photographer for that, is shoot how you want and need and feel to shoot. People pick up on that. If people come to you and tell you how specifically to shoot, then that's the wrong client for you. Or you're doing it wrong because if you give in to that, you've lost. I mean, you have to be the strong person in this because you have the expertise. You know how you do it and nobody else does. And so I keep pounding on this because to young photographers or aspiring photographers specifically, it's like find your voice and let it be heard. Now is an age where you can easily get your style out simply by social media. I'm a good example of that because my career was kickstarted by it and I wouldn't be where I am without it. But the only way to do it is to make yourself noticeable, is to do your thing. Because if you work as you are told to work, then you have no face, voice on your own and you need that because they're going to pick you because of what you do and not how adaptable you are. And the thing is, if you're going to shoot, if you're going to be a very technical photographer and you're going to adapt your style to whatever the client wants, then you become a slave of the market, which means like they go to everybody who does that and go for the cheapest one. While if you have your own style, if you have your own vision on stuff, they know that you're very professional. I mean, working for a team became easier for me because they know that I know everything about the cycling team. I know how it works. I've been in and out of there for the past six years and I've lived with them. I travel with them and a lot of them became good friends. So I know a lot of riders pretty good and I know how they live even on and off the bike. And because of that, because I know that environment very well, and that is apart from my photography, is an extra reason to actually hire me to do a job because they trust me. And so your own voice is much, much, much more important than being, I mean, a tool for whatever art director or, or somebody who is not into photography and telling you how to do it is completely wrong. But that is my vision on things, and I keep pounding on it, and I know it works. But you have to be convinced by yourself as a photographer to do that. But I think they're wise words. I, I really do. And it's tough to find your own voice and stick to your guns. But I think like listening to you and, and looking at your story, that's why teams are picking you or asking to hire you to come out with them for the year. And it's fantastic. If you've been listening to the podcast regularly, 
You'll know that the Snap Photo Festival is coming up in April, the 24th to the 28th of April in 2017, up in Wales, UK. This is just about your last chance to get on board on what will be an amazing four days of learning and shooting and making friends and so much more. I mean, this is this is a festival. It's not just a photography workshop. And if you heard in the intro, there is less than 20 places left. So you really need to act fast if you want to get there and experience what will be an amazing event. Now, I've talked in the past about the different presenters, some of the topics that will be covered, and I'll mention some of those again now, but some of the outside activities, apart from all the learning that will be happening, and there are a heap of them, include a sauna, SEO health checks on your website, there's going to be campfires, there's a Fuji film kit available for loan, I'm pretty sure there's multiple kits there, there's, <laughs> I was going to say there's swimming But the Snap guys have gone further than that. They've said there's wild swimming, there's gorge walks, beach trips, live shoots, and one-to-one financial advice from the presenters there. Like I said, it's so much more than your normal photography seminar. We turn up, you go into a hall, you sit down, and you watch someone present a slideshow or slides with a projector and a screen. I mean, you're going to walk into this event, you're going to make friends, even if you're shy, there's even a course Tazine Ahmad will be putting together and it's networking for the networking averse. So even if you turn up to this event and you don't know anyone, I can guarantee you will come away with lifelong friends. And I know how scary it is turning up to some of these events, particularly when you're on your own and you don't know anyone and you feel like everyone else is more experienced, more talented, more gifted, a better photographer than what you are. You don't need to worry. You can go in here and you will make friends. At the very least, you'll have a laugh because there's karaoke as well. (laughs) There's a film night. I mentioned the campfires. And yeah, I keep talking about the fun things, but look, there is a lot of learning to do as well. I mean, you've got Kevin Mullins there talking about the business of photography, you know, and he knows better than anyone that photography as a business is 95% business, 5% shooting. You've got an SEO expert there, Madeline Jones, who's going to be talking about how you can utilize SEO in your business and how to demystify the whole thing, make it easy to understand, easy to implement, and easier for you to get your site ranked and attract the kind of clients that you want to be attracting. You've got Miss Lolly there, who's going to be talking about finances, and she's the one that's going to be offering those one-on-one financial, I guess, mini workshops or advice for you, if that's something that you're struggling with. And then there's these live shoots that'll be happening as well. Did I mention the dinner and the party (laughs) and the surprise afternoon activities? This is going to be a great four days. And what I really love about the timetable that they've got set up, and you can find this at the snapphotofestival.com website, is it's not just going from seminar to seminar to seminar and listening to speaker after speaker after speaker. There's room there to socialize, to go and explore, to go and shoot, to have some fun rather than just learning the whole time. I mean, if you think you're going to turn up and sit down in a chair for four days listening to speakers, yeah, this isn't that event. It's totally different. If you want to get involved, get over to snapphotofestival.com. Make sure you can get to the UK, to Wales, and I believe the location is amazing. With your ticket, you get accommodation, you get meals. It's all included. 
It's from the 24th to the 28th of April. Use the promo code SNAP100. And if there's any tickets left, you'll save 100 British pounds off the cost of your ticket. It sounds amazing. It really does. If you can get there, get there. Snapphotofestival.com. When you're, say, working with the team like you are with Trek and you're staying in the same hotel, you're travelling with them, do you have a camera with you all the time? Like, do you come down at breakfast, do you have a camera around your neck? Are you always with a camera? No. Oh, really? So why not? Don't you think, look, there's such and such, you know, look at him with his plate of cereal. That's going to be a funny shot. Well, I know that I'm losing images. Like, I mean, I'm losing, I see stuff that would be extremely interesting to document it. But at the same time, I mean, if you're in a team, you're going to trust each other. And I'm really in a team at that point. I'm one of the guys. And you want to give them a rest sometimes. You don't want to give them the feeling that I still have. I I might know the soigneurs and the writers very good. But when I walk into, I just knock on the door, walk into a room in the hotel and say, like, hey, I always ask, is it okay if I take some pictures during massage? I mean, I could just go in and shoot the pictures, but then that wouldn't be a respectful thing to do. Same goes for meals. That is the one really rest point for them is because all the rest is either being in a massage or preparation or this or that. You have to get in there slowly. Don't forge your way in because then you don't build that trust. And you so you give them time to relax as well because if they see me with a camera, all the time, they might be on their toes all the time. And I don't want them. And so it's about, and at the same time, I need to rest myself sometimes. So I need to <laughs> put, the, put the camera down and eat a meal with them and speak and talk about your own kids and your own stories and, and don't just wait for things to happen. But it, yeah, it all builds. It all builds. And sometimes I walk to a hotel corridor and there's something fascinating happen. Well, and sometimes I need to rush back to my room, get the camera and sh- try and shoot it if it's still there. So sometimes that happens too. Mm-hmm. Let me change the subject and bring up a topic that we've been discussing in our, our Facebook group. This happened to a wedding photographer that I know. He saw one of his photos appear in a magazine and was an advertisement for a reception venue. And he didn't give permission for that magazine to use that photo. Somehow they got hold of it and they used it. Does something like that ever happen to you? And if it has, how do you handle something like that? Well, as I don't have an agent, I have to handle it myself. There's two examples. Yes, it happened. And I guess it almost happens to almost everybody. I just sent them a bill. (laughs) So there's no chat. You just send them a bill. There is no excuse whatsoever for any advertiser to use your pictures, whether you're a professional or not. You have to have an agreement that tells like, yes, you can use the picture for this and for that for that long. And this is the price for it. It might be for nothing at all because you're an amateur and you think like, I'm just happy that it appears in a magazine or something. But as professionals specifically, you have to react. And I usually just send the bill. And which means like I charge what I think is reasonable. I double the amount because they didn't use it with permission. And I put another 100% on top of that if they didn't credit me. (laughs) Are we talking $2,000 here or what are you talking 
Well, that was never paid. The thing is, I had it happen, and it just they'd never pay. So what do you do then? Do legal stuff, or you can go like, is it worth it or not? Right. And that's what you've got to decide. But I haven't until now. The other thing that happened to me, and this is what happened more often, I had two, in the past, two true viral pictures, which I posted on my account on Instagram, which a lot of people just copied. They scrubbed my name out, and then it got picked up by magazines worldwide. And I just mean every freaking magazine, not newspaper. It was up in newspapers and stuff. and, and Oh, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I could go after that, but it would take me months, literally. And it would have brought me a few thousand euros for sure, but I don't have the time to go after it and to say, like, that picture is not. And the thing they're going to say is, like, it was up on Instagram. I said, no, no, I had my credit on it. Somebody else took it, and I cropped it, and that's what you used. So, yeah, you can go after it, or you cannot. It's all to you. It happens. But if it's used commercially, I go after them no matter what. You said that happened to you. You set this bill and they didn't pay it. So what then, is that just like a warning to them, like don't do it again? Yeah. The thing is, I live in Belgium. That specific company I'm referring to, what I sent the bill to, is in Malta. Malta, the islands in Mediterranean. The thing is, they just ignored me. And then I can, like, if the company's in Malta... Or I can I can start a, a case here, but they would never show up, obviously. Yeah. Or I can go there, and then it will cost me a lot of money for nothing. So I billed them, and I did a credit note after that, but I didn't tell them. Uh, well, no, you, you react. But if it's really important, I would go after it, yes. And only a week ago, I had a big contract for a car manufacturer that wanted to use one of the pictures, but it was all clean. They just, it was very professional. They just ask you, hey, can we use the picture? What will be the amount? You come down to an amount, you have a real contract. And all is very clear. So you're like, okay, that's it. It can go professionally right as well. So, yeah. Christoph, I know we're approaching the end of this interview. Have you got just two or three more minutes for me to ask you one more question? Of course. Go ahead. I know the listener would be wrapped to hear a little bit about your work flow because you know you said you come back after a day say a classic and you're up till all hours can you just give us a quick idea of what you do when you walk into the hotel after a day of shooting now what software you use what do you do with the images just an outline here's the thing let's just break down the day so you get an idea let's go for a classic i I leave the house at like six or seven in the morning and i go to the race Uh, i don't go to the race i actually go to the finish place which is usually 200 kilometers further down somewhere in another town. I drop my car there. My motor pilot picks me up and we ride to the start. And we need to be like two hours there, two hours before the start. Then I need to go to a meeting, the motor meeting for the in-race photographers. It's a formal thing we need to do. And the issue at the hand is always safety. This is what you can do. This is what you're not going to do. After a while, obviously, you know. When that meeting is done, I go out and I go and start shooting at the team bus. I go to either in the bus, I go uh, start pictures. I just walk around and then try to grab some the stuff that happens around cycling and the start place. When the race starts, obviously, there's four hours, somewhere between four and six hours of race ahead, and you just cover the race. When we go to the finish in the last two, three kilometers or five kilometers, all depends, you cannot shoot anymore, so you have to go ahead. 
the motorpilot drops me at the finish line and I either shoot the finish line, which I find boring most of the time, or I go somewhere else further down the line and I wait for riders to crash into the Swanyar's hands and hopefully have a good face uh, to photograph at that point. Then after that, I might go either to the buses and wait for the riders there to come in or I finish my photo job just there. Sometimes I do podium, sometimes I do not. It all depends. And after that, I don't usually go to the press center. I go to the press center to either give back my bib or for something else practical. And then I don't stay at the press center. I go at the press center and I get the start list and stuff like that. All the paperwork I need to process the pictures. And I take that home with me. So I come home and I uh, take a shower, kiss my kids, put them into bed, eat something. And then I start editing. And that's a long process. That's another day. Right. How many photos roughly for a classic? A classic? Somewhere, usually a thousand. Between a thousand and twelve hundred. That's very average. And I'm not, I'm not that shooter. I'm more like a click, click, click shooter. But still, I have like a thousand or twelve hundred pictures somewhere. And the first thing I do is like I ingest them obviously into Photo Mechanic now because the ingestion there is very fast. And there I make simply a first selection. So you're selecting your best shots, or you're deleting the bad shots? I'm deleting the bad shots because I have several clients, and I need about for a Traditional classic, there's somewhere between 40, 50, and it might be, if it's a very important classic, might go up to 100 pictures that I put into the archive that is available for all my clients. And then there's pictures that are more specific to teams. I wouldn't put them in the archive because they're not interesting enough, but they're interesting enough for the team because they have a specific rider underway somewhere and they need it for their Facebook. So that's what I'm going and select those and put them in different bins and stuff. So when I have a selection made, which is somewhere 60, 70 pictures, the first thing I do is to tag the most important pictures, like the winner, somewhere in between, maybe the finish or whatever, and put those three pictures up as soon as I can. Once that is done, I start processing the pictures like one by one. And I have to, and this is the main bulk of work, is keyword everything. Because it's a horrible job, but if I don't do it, it's like I'm going to regret it for the rest of, I mean, for the rest of my career. <laughs> do you do that inside Photo Mechanic? No, I do that in Lightroom. Because in Photo Mechanic, I've introduced like a basic caption, the basic keywords and the race information and the renaming of the files all happens in Photo Mechanic. And then I introduce it into Lightroom because I shoot raw. I get it into Lightroom and then I have my three-star selections and put those up, and which, let's say that's like 50 or 60 of them, and I start keywording everything, captioning, keywording, who's in the picture, what's the situation, where is he, is there cobbles, can I see cobbles, is there rain, is there a storm, I keyword all that, I caption it, and that takes me a couple of hours almost sometimes, easily two, three hours to get everything right. The good thing is, never again in the future do I have to go back and search for specific pictures because now my clients can. If they want Marcel Kittel, if they want Tom Bonin or any of those guys, they just type, it, they type in the name in the search field and they get all the pictures of that. Or they can do it specifically and narrow it down to Tom Bonin plus and then add a specific race. And then they only have the Tom Bonin picture of that race. So because I've done the keywording right, I don't have to go back to it ever in the future. And I search for the pictures of myself that way. 
if I need to. And that is so that's very important work. And then comes the fun part again, which is just the processing of the pictures, which is very intuitive. And that when the pictures really come to life and when I get enthusiastic again, and that might be for the big classics, that might be two, three, four in the morning when they're all ready and I upload them to sites. So by the morning, all the important pictures should be up for all my clients to use. So they're up into your archive that only they have access to, or can everyone see these photos? Everybody can look at the pictures, but the downloading only is for clients. Right. And do they already have a licensing agreement with you to use them? Yeah. Right. They already know yeah. that if they have access to download. Yes, because I also gave them a download permit. So if they log in with their account, they can download the pictures. And I have an agreement with them, whether it be by retainer or per picture. At the back end of my site, I use PhotoShelter. And at the back end of that, I can see who downloaded the picture. So if need be, I can check who's downloading what exactly and in what and how many and stuff. Okay. So this is the crumon.photoshelter.com site. Exactly. Okay. I'm looking at that site now and I've only got back to 2016. How do I go back further? You just go into galleries and you can go to all the galleries and then you can go back all the way to 2012. Okay. I thought I'd... Oh, okay. Now I have. Yes. Okay. I've got it. Obviously, with, I think there's, I don't know how many galleries by now. There's a lot. <laughs> Let's say, yeah, 200. I don't know. I cannot put them on the front page, obviously. So what you see on the front page when you come on is like the last 15 galleries I had up. And you can go from there or you can go into galleries and you can go all the way back to the first race of 2012 because that's when I started this archive. Fantastic. Fantastic. Christoph, this has been an absolute pleasure. It really has. And I just want to say thanks for, for giving up your time, for sharing what you have and you know, answering all my questions. I know the listeners are going to love it and I've certainly had an absolute ball. So again, mate, thank you so much. My absolute pleasure. Just before you go, is this the best site to check out all your work and where else can people find you? I think Instagram is a very good resource for that because I am a visual person and that social network is very visual. So Kramon uh, underscore Velofoto would be my Instagram account. All right, that's great. I'll add links to that and your photo shelter site plus anything else I can find on you in the show notes so the listener can go and check out more of your work. I absolutely love the photo you've got up there. I'm not sure who is it. Post-race stash, including chunks. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that would be stiff. Even high, the American cyclocross champion. Absolutely fantastic shot. Yeah. Well, with all the mud that was there and it kept hanging in his moustache and in his beard and it was like fantastic. And in his expression when he came across the line was like, <gasps> oh, I can't breathe anymore. It was like, <laughs> that was fantastic. Yeah, true, true. Fantastic. Christoph, again, mate, thank you so much. Thank you, Andrew. Bye. Alrighty, a massive thanks to Christoph for coming on the show, for sharing what you did. Mate, I really appreciate you spending the time with us and, uh, yeah, taking us through a day in the life as a pro cycling photographer. It sounds glamorous, it looks amazing, but I'm not sure if I could handle the, the follow-up workload that comes after each event. Uh, mate, you are an absolute machine. Again, mate, thank you so much for coming on the show and, and sharing what you did. For you, the listener, if you want to check out more of Christoph's work, I've got links in the show notes. You can find them at photobizx.com forward slash tpx19 and in the show notes I've got links to anything and everything that Christoph mentioned and talked about I've got examples of his beautiful amazing incredible work and normally I pick out a few quotes 
to go with the show notes, you know, to put in there amongst the photos of the guest. And I had so many, so many great quotes from Christoph. I actually had to end up deleting a few, but yeah, go and check some of them out. If you want to leave a comment for Christoph, if you want to say thanks for coming on the show, there is a comments area right at the bottom there of the show notes. And I'm sure if you have any follow-up questions, he'd be happy to answer those as well. And to finish up, I want to say a big thanks to the Snap Photo Festival people for sponsoring today's show, for making the podcast possible, for allowing me the opportunity to interview guests like Christoph and make the whole podcast possible. So again, if you want to check them out, head over to snapphotofestival.com Use the SNAP100 promo code and get 100 British pounds off the cost of your ticket. All right, have an awesome week and I'll chat to you soon. Bye for now. You've been listening to the Photo Experiment Podcast with Andrew Helmich, brought to you by PhotoBizX, the podcast to help you build a successful portrait and wedding photography business. To learn more, head to photobizx.com. 